0: Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of In the Landscape. We're happy you're listening and we look forward to presenting, hopefully another interesting episode on a garden topic.
1: That's right. It's interesting to us and we We feel like it's likely it's interesting to others too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So far, so good. We're small, but we're growing and we're here starting to hear from many of our listeners from different parts of the world, which is exciting. I'm your host, Kate Sadler, of course, and I'm here in studio with my co-host, Charles. Good to be here. Hi, Charles. Welcome to another episode yourself. It's always fun for us to sit and kind of brainstorm ideas for episodes. Mm -hmm. And then we do a fair amount of research for the episodes. So Hopefully it sounds like it. <laughs> we, we, we are trying. Of course, last episode was a lot of fun. My mom was in studio. Mm-hmm. Deborah Caldwell. And she helped give us the scientist's take on soil.
1: We had all the measurements of the soil particle sizes. Oh, that was Remember very that? cool. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and Five hundredths
1: of, of the, a millimeter. <laughs> yeah, and then
0: some of the exciting, it's precision matters when it's, you know, science. Today's topic actually came to us. I think we mentioned in that episode that we were planning to go, all three of us, to a special garden here just outside of Houston, Peckerwood Garden, and we were going for a tour and then staying for a luncheon for potential volunteers. And so we have since, (laughs) as of this recording, gone and done that. And it was a really lovely, a really lovely day. Mm -hmm. What were some of the highlights for you?
1: Well, you know, one thing, which I wasn't aware of, so it's native plants to the region, Texas, North America, and Mexico, but also plants from Asia, which I didn't know. So let's see, highlights. The way the garden felt, it really varied. There was, when we started the tour, the parking area, and there was the old nursery, and then you entered, the grading was very interesting, because where we live in Houston, it's pretty flat. The natural landform, I imagine it was natural, I'm not sure. It really undulated a lot, which was interesting. And there were—it was a Mexican oak canopy, which did not have its leaves. That had a, had a really neat feel. And then all the evergreen trees. You work in, It was an, an arid section with different kinds of yucca. Had a very dry feel. Then there was a woodland section that had almost a Japanese garden feel, where there were my old friend's boxwood, <laughs> which I was surprised to see as many of that. And then the lowland area was some type of a stream that ran through the property with bald cypress. And then as you came out of that, I remember it was an area that they were developing, and it was more like a, like what had probably been a field or a meadow. And there were more newly planted trees.
0: It was exciting to kind of see those transitions that there were elements of the garden, of course, that had been growing since the artist who had sort of envisioned this garden had begun the process of of collecting and then planting what he had collected. There was the old house that he had, I guess, been in up until very recently and had to transition out of that residence. And you could see, as you mentioned, kind of the transition of the garden as you got closer to the house and some of the features there. You also mentioned by the nursery, I think they said there's like 13 acres yet to kind of develop. And so there's this exciting process of kind of rejuvenating certain areas of the landscape. And that the greenhouse at one time almost served as a a retail nursery. Folks could order plants. And I don't think it's that now, but the the folks there who do the propagation of the plants do have plants for sale. So we actually, Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of the highlights of the day. At the volunteer luncheon was a raffle for plants. Oh,
1: right. <laughs> that was like so people call. that love plants, right? It's like...
0: Everyone was very excited. And for me, as our listeners know, I'm not as well-versed in in plant life. Although, believe me, I learn, I learn a lot as we go. And I did find this visit very interesting and inspiring. And the, the garden was lovely. But I was able to get a special Mexican oregano. Oh, right. For my garden. So... <laughs> So, you know, that intersection of cooking and the garden is something that appeals to me. So Mm -hmm. it was very nice. There was something for everyone. I think I noted on our tour, it was given by one of the people who actually works there, but also volunteers his time on the weekend to to give tours. Oh, that's uh,
1: uh, Craig Jackson.
0: Mm -hmm. And I believe he started as a volunteer and then worked his way into this position as really kind of in charge of propagating these plants and what was so interesting to me was getting to meet some of the people who did the collecting were actually going out into these remote reaches of you know hillsides in mexico and and collecting acorns and then bringing them back and you know nurturing these plantings from seed and that that's Mm -hmm. really the process that is undertaken at this special special garden. They're not ordering from nurseries, you know, they're really nurturing and sometimes it's successful and sometimes it isn't.
1: Well, some of the plants when I visited uh, growers in different parts of the US, so oak trees, to my knowledge, that they, they are hard to propagate from cuttings or so an acorn is the main way to which takes a lot of time. I mean, it's not <laughs> it has to start from nothing. It's quite laborious. And then there's some acorns that don't germinate, so it's there are some plants. They're difficult to propagate, and so what's in the nursery trade, it's somewhat informed by what's relatively easy and profitable to make more of, which is not necessarily the plants with the best traits. Or there could be plants that are detrimental to the environment, you know, that are invasive in some some way that crowd out other native plants. So organizations that are growing this wide range of beneficial plants, it's it's quite noble.
0: And you. Got to share yourself this little bit of, it of knowledge you had. I think about the street tree street tree program at Cornell. Right. Or is it the Morris Arboretum? Right. Well, there. they're crossing uh, the current oak species with Mexican oaks because they are more, I guess, maybe drought tolerant. Correct. Or, yeah.
1: So they're crossing the Mexican oaks that have the drought tolerant characteristics. They tend to have smaller leaves, as from what I've th- the varieties I've seen, and they're crossing them with the readily available oaks that would be in the in the trade and which would be north american oaks which have the ornamental features that people like as climate gets more extreme those traditional species are the species don't adapt quickly as mm-hmm. they, they don't it adapt as quick yeah. as quickly as the weather's changing as it mm-hmm. appears to be changing mm-hmm. so these hybrids are creating these like super trees basically that would still be a beautiful red oak white oak appearance but would have but would be tougher to getting more rain at once and then more drought and then higher temperatures.
0: Well, and even some of the Mexican species that we saw on our tour, you know, uh, we were told when they didn't cope quite as well, they didn't love the, you know, the wet summer and the, or the yeah, sort yeah, of wet vice versa, winter. wet winter. Yes, right. <laughs> Not happy with wet winter. So I know that is a special a characteristic when you have one specific dry season and plants are adapted to that. And from a design perspective, I think one of the nice things about this visit was it was really putting into practice kind of what we've advocated on this program, which is getting out into your local gardens. So visiting your local nurseries is fantastic because you can see what the sellers would like you to purchase for your yard, what's popular, what's being grown. But if you really want a sense of what plants you can design with. And so for my, my mom, for example, has a shady backyard and was looking for design ideas for what grows well in shade and not just, I guess, not just the usual suspects or not just what's on offer at your average nursery. Mm-hmm. And so you visit and find these other species or these other types of cultivars is a word I've started <laughs> to learn <laughs> that might do well in your landscape. And so you, as a practicing landscape designer here in Texas, are more than familiar with the Northeastern flora (laughs) Mm -hmm. and yet coming here and being really really effective as a designer is all about I guess almost humbly letting the landscape speak to you but you have to go out in it to to hear that and to learn right Mm -hmm.
1: to say like whether you're hiking in a preserve in the region you live in and taking a photo and using an online chat group to say okay, this is growing and and they always want you to give the the location you know mm-hmm. I'm in Galveston Bay Area, I mm-hmm. found this flowering in a beach dune, mm-hmm. and then with a the photo, people could say oh that's that's so and so."
0: I mean, we even had a few I guess like native maples pointed out, you know, you don't think the maple is is big here in Texas as it as it is in the northeast, and yet you know there's a few species that have some really beautiful characteristics, so right so that was it was a wonderful visit. If you happen to be in the area, we highly recommend going. It is one of the gardens on the Garden Conservancy list. Um, of course that's an organization that's deeply invested in supporting the preservation of important gardens. So if you mm-hmm. were a homeowner with a penchant for a penchant for <laughs> gardening uh-huh. and an artistic eye and you happen to have been one of these collectors, you know this organization identifies those gardens they're not necessarily institutions as they're being developed so it's not like a botanical garden where the, you know that's the mission up front and so they're identified and then brought into this the preservation circle
1: right correct i know many examples of garden conservant gardens that the garden conservancy helps fund and it's, so it's it is a public private partnership a person creates a garden or a couple or a group of people and then since it's living plants without when those people are unable to care for that, it's often t- toward the end of their life, it would more or less be lost. So there's, I'm not I'm positive, but I'm guessing, there's often some kind of funding or endowment for the person that created it. And then the Garden Conservancy also has helps with marketing, managing, fundraising, contributing funds, uh, sort of using their institutional expertise to help that garden go on and, and then become open to the public in some fashion.
0: And I don't want to get the fact wrong. I think it may have been the second garden. I think Ruth Bancroft was the first, which mm-hmm. was similar, similar collector's garden. It's truly sort of a botanical collection of succulents and and drought tolerant. It's gorgeous out in the Bay Area and Walnut Creek. And this was maybe second, but it was one of the early ones. It was seen Definitely early on as a special collection of plants by a private individual that deserved to be preserved. Mm-hmm. So Correct. it was really special. And we went to the volunteer lunch, we got, we had our raffle, as I mentioned, and it was very exciting to be sort of invited into the world of volunteering for gardens. This is something that Charles is well acquainted with. I am not so much, (laughs) luckily had some opportunities along the administrative line, which is (laughs) right up my alley mm-hmm. So can can I volunteer to sit on the porch and look at the pond <laughs> Is that a, it's, it, no that wasn't a position but if I go work in the office I could probably spend a few minutes on that porch and relax mm-hmm. that's like actually a
1: big part and enjoy the environment like when I've done you know some pre-episode research that the administrative component there's a working in the garden but the administrative component every garden has that element and so On a limited budget, there might not be a full-time administrative paid position. So doing a mailing or lots of these organizations, as I've seen them, they'll have at least one annual fundraiser. It could be a gala or a raffle. And so there's often a big volunteer administrative push for that.
0: So for me, it's about kind of realizing that I can be sort of as I am in my own life. Again, I'm surrounded by gardeners and enjoying these gorgeous gardens it isn't where my strength lies. I have about 30 minutes of garden energy <laughs> on a given day. And then that's it. And then I'm done. And that the job is never done in 30 minutes. 30 minutes is just getting
1: like the tools sharpened and getting all set up. <laughs> it's kind of
0: like, I'll hold the tree while you stick it in the ground and shovel the dirt back in. And then I've helped, but that's sort of the limit. And as much as I have been with you and in the, except for except for thinning boxwood, I really get into flow when I'm thinning mm. boxwood. I could do that indefinitely, but it's the rare activity. So I don't want to sort of aspirationally volunteer for something that wouldn't be appropriate for me. And yet mm-hmm. there, is, there is a place for all of us. And at the same time, there may be some light opportunities for me to do a little more with the, with the folks that are doing the real sort of horticultural work, but I don't have to push myself where I'm not capable.
1: And you can do more than one too. I mean, like at, the pe- mm-hmm. at Peckerwood at the luncheon, you said that you could sign up for more than one category. And that's often true in organizations where someone might have a fundraising background and they want to help out like in a volunteer role with a garden so they could help in, the, in their level of expertise, but maybe they really want to improve their vegetable gardening. And so it could be a hybrid, you mm-hmm. know, part-time in one role that you're good at and then part-time in the act of volunteering that you would, be, that you would improve.
0: Well, beekeeping was one of the options, and I actually right. signed up for that because there is a little bit of training involved, and that I think I could like <laughs> really get into.
1: That'd so. be great to do with our son yeah, someday. Yeah,
0: wouldn't it? I love being outside. So it's not the being outside, it's somehow the gardening labor that's not as easy for me to really commit to in the long hours. But And I mentioned sort of before starting that little conversation that you're actually really familiar with gar- garden volunteering, and that's because your entire career as a landscape designer basically began with this concept.
1: Right. It was the late 90s. I was working in illustration and advertising in Manhattan, which was, it was exciting, but it was pretty stressful. And, <laughs> and so imagine. On, on the weekends, I would always do an outing where I'd get on, on one of the railroads and go to the Hudson Valley or Long Island. Or, and so I one weekend, I made my way to the Humes Japanese Stroll Garden which is also one of the garden conservancies, one of their very early gardens, which they help support. It's about 45 minutes from New York City on Long Island's North Shore. So not on the Hamptons, which is almost at the end of Long Island, but this was across from Connecticut, basically, on Long Island. I remember visiting. It was incredibly beautiful. I was greeted by a volunteer. There was the man who was the curator, Stephen Morrell, who I still correspond with a little bit. He was a paid employee, but but part-time, but most of the garden was run by volunteers. And so I immediately I might have volunteered, I might have started like the next week or two, I'm going to guess. You didn't really need training. They was on they trained you on the job.
0: That's one of the beautiful things that I found out from this luncheon. So for me, if if I hear the words like garden conservancy and special collection of plants, rare plants. And, <laughs> absolutely. I assume distance that in order to be a volunteer, you somehow have to have, I don't even know because just, the, the, I mean, volunteer supposes that they need people to just show up and say, Hey, I'm, I'm here to work. Mm-hmm. But I still assume as an outsider that you need, that they're somehow inaccessible. And to be fair, one of the things you found in your research has to do with volunteering for big organizations, like the big ones, uh, Chicago. Like, Can you describe that a little?
1: They're like Millennium Park. Oh, yeah. That was one that, that came to mind. I mean, Central Park, uh, I can C- imagine. Yeah, Central Park. So those, they're big organizations and there's hundreds. The Highline, that's another big one. So, I mean, they might have like upwards of a thousand volunteers, I'm going to guess. So one pattern that reoccurred was that they had one time of year, like April 1st, and all the gar- volunteers were selected by that period. And then they trained that incoming class, so to speak. So it was very organized and then the bigger organizations well even the smaller ones they're going to invest in you in training you whether you're sort of the categories would be a docent or a volunteer which the, would tend to be gardening so either of those categories a docent
0: might be more like tours Correct, or oh, right. yeah events
1: so okay. someone that didn't want to necessarily get their hands dirty but they <laughs> love the garden and and there's history and you know storytelling people that like engaging with the public so if they're going to invest in you and train you they often had a minimum. They said, we want you to commit. I think it was 20 hours a year, 40 hours. And so it's often seasonal. So it's not like 52 weeks. Maybe it's like 30 weeks or 40 weeks.
0: So you have to be ready to commit. Right. Um, in many cases. Unless it's a, a less demanding institution. And they are just they just need some hands to help at some point.
1: Right. So not to scare people off. You'd want to find out. You know, what organizations are in your area and if there would be drop-in hours i mean some of the bigger ones said we don't have like you can't drop in and help because it's it's like an army it's, it's mm, very organized but some of the smaller ones they might be really eager and like when i worked at the humes garden in long island like saturdays were the big day that's when it was open for tours i think it was every saturday and then people would stay so there were a lot of volunteers on Saturdays. So the, helping both as docents and actually doing garden work.
0: So from my perspective, I guess I was sort of envisioning it as all volunteer opportunities being a little like the big institutions, that there'd be sort of a bar to entry for someone mm. who, you know, has an unpredictable schedule as an entrepreneur and not the background in gardening that they might want. And yet this the prospect of being trained and, and finding a garden that has a little bit of flexibility all of a sudden the possibility is open mm-hmm. and kind of the insight that a garden, even if it's on the garden conservancy list and it seems to have support and it's got a nice website and you know flashy brochure does not necessarily mean that they have a sufficient number of volunteers. You know, right. landscape labor is intense.
1: <laughs> it's tough. It has to occur. When plants are growing, it's either between warm and hot, Mm -hmm. and it can be very hot no that's true and that's when people visit gardens so it's almost the time that's can be the most physically difficult to maintain the garden when it's hot is when people want to visit the garden when it should look its best
0: and whenever there's expansion it's always a battle against the invasives that happen to be there so there's a lot of like land clearing and things like that Mm. so if, if it is a garden that's on the on the move in terms of expansion there may be a lot of labor needed to kind of help mm-hmm. assist it get to the next level, and so there there are there's space available. If you thought maybe volunteering wasn't for you, you maybe just haven't found the right garden.
1: And even doing it, doing it with a friend can make it fun, or father and son, or mother mm-hmm. daughter. And the hours can be very flexible. It could be Tuesdays from ten to two. You know, it could be it might seem like an unusual time. Some of the gardens they would have a weekday or more where there was a concerted volunteer more or less like a push to groom it for the weekends.
0: So how did you make the transition from volunteer to professional? And would you recommend it? So let's say I love volunteering and I think maybe I'd like to be a landscape designer. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> What's that path like?
1: I mean some of it was economics, was impractical. I volunteered at the at the Hume's Japanese Garden and I thought, I love this. I love getting out here pruning. We were building traditional Japanese garden. Fences out of bamboo, setting stones. It was, I mean, it was hard work, but it was fascinating. And I was being mentored by the curator and by others. There was a full time gardener. And so I thought, how can I make a living at this? I mean, working in us in advertising, I could not make a comparable living as a gardener there. I couldn't support myself on it. Even though the cost of living in that area is a, well, actually, housing is sort of hard. It's in an upscale suburban neighborhood. So, that led me to to pursue how could I make a living. And then I started taking landscape architecture, landscape history classes. And then that led to going back to school full-time.
0: So, one of the things we might say, though, is in terms of the living as a landscape designer, until you are at the level that you're able to you know have your own practice or commit to a program that that upon graduation you're likely to kind of get brought on in a large firm that the economics of of gardening and landscape design are challenging mm-hmm. um, it's a little i equate it my background's performing arts and it's a little bit similar that especially if you're trying to go it alone as an entrepreneur uh, you know it's a it's a client by client basis so it really depends on if you're booking jobs or not booking jobs so just to say that Making the transition from volunteer into professional is a weighty consideration. Right. um, And it's not an easy transition necessarily. Yeah, good point.
1: I mean, if if one has a spouse, if they have a full-time, if you have a diversified income, that helps. If you don't, then it was, I mean, it was like blood, sweat, and tears that I really put a lot into it. And it was about, it was the late 90s that I started volunteering. And then I worked in advertising for some more years. I mean, it was like roughly almost ten years from when I first volunteered to when I to when I exited graduate school and then started working in the profession. And then you're almost like starting at square one. Mm-hmm. almost that's the humbling part. Almost everything you learn as a professional, you learn on the job. So mm-hmm. the school training, it was very valuable, but you're almost starting at square one,
0: which is true for so many careers. and 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 it is a seasonal, as you mentioned, it is a seasonal field. And so, This is not to discourage anyone from going into it, but just be, you know, put away a sizable nest egg if you want to transition into this as a profession because it is somewhat hard to get established.
1: Right. um, But then people are also very in the industry. I mean, I I like to think that I'm generous with people who have been very generous to me with asking questions, mentoring, shadowing somebody. Like, what does your day look like? Can I Spend the morning in your office, or someone that's maybe does field work.
0: So, if you're a listener and you do have questions along those lines, if maybe you're considering this transition, certainly feel free to drop us a line. Listen, at the end of the episode, we give out our email address. You know, we're happy to hear from people considering the transition, and and kind of that mentorship process is great. And I think that's maybe what the volunteering is also about is just being a part of a community that understands mm-hmm. the love of plants. You know? right. like, Not like it's that rare, but you're like with your to, people, so to yes, speak, that's but, how I feel. <laughs> I mean, to love it to that extent that you are, you know, seeking it out in remote places and nurturing it from seed. And I mean, mm-hmm. it really is, I guess, a slightly outside observer. I can see it. I can see the kind of like light in the eyes of the people talking about it with each other. I might feel the same way about talking about music or like classical music or something. So anything else to share about your thoughts for people maybe considering volunteering or, you know, it's a topic I'm sure many of our listeners have already even kind of gone down this road, but Mm -hmm. it was just a way of reflecting on our visit to this special garden. So we thought we'd share.
1: I mean, that old principle, you get back way more than you put into Mm. it, that it, it feels good when you leave, when you're volunteering and you're I mean, it, people are doing it with love. Mm-hmm. These gardens, they have modest budgets considering what what they are. You know, if it was a public institution, it would be multi-million dollar budgets. And their budgets are usually a lot less than that. You're surrounded by lighthearted souls that are doing it out of love. And I you know, often learn the most from fellow volunteers because they might have a specialty. And they would share that.
0: You're also surrounded by whatever lighthearted spirit is in the plants themselves. I mean, there is Ah. something about this community of plants that's been nurtured and cultivated and brought up together. Mm -hmm. And so you get a chance to kind of feel that, which is very special. You know, we talked a little about street trees and some of them are glorious, but every once in a while you pass one and you almost sense, I may may be projecting way too much, but almost like the tortured little soul that's in there, Mm. not to personify it too much, but it's sad when plants are not given this level of love, and it's rare that a group of plantings has been given this much mm-hmm. attention and appreciation for so long. So it's a nice, it's a very nice sort of like karmic energy in terms of right. getting to be a part of that.
1: And I mean, the the gardens often have an outreach mission, which is to educate children. There's lots of youth volunteer programs, children and adults that are not exposed to nature, maybe in less fortunate you know, urban areas. And so it's not just the glorification of beautiful plants, but there really is a noble vision to it.
0: So Charles, for people considering volunteering, do you have any resources that you'd like to share?
1: From the research I did, there's the Garden Conservancy. It's a great organization. There are other ones. So depending on where you are in the world, there's something called volunteermatch.org. So that could be many kinds of volunteering. And that's I think that's worldwide. There's another cool one I found, which is called workaway.info. And so that some of that would be garden positions and it could be working in a garden in another part of the world. An organization that I started to get involved with Institute of Classical Art and Architecture. That's professionals volunteering. So it's, it could be historians, different types of people in the different type of decorative arts, architects, landscape designers, uh, volunteering, giving public talks on their area of specialty.
0: Great. All right. That's helpful. So we're getting caught up on our show notes, but we'll get those up on our website in the near future. Um, This episode was a little short and sweet. We're going to pre-record a few episodes because you are on your way to Manhattan very soon to give a talk at Rizzoli Bookstore on Longview Garden. We're We're going to share that topic with our listeners in a couple weeks. And I believe next week, we're going to aim to get the Designing for children episode pulled together and out for you. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll just put it right out there. That's what we're, what's what we're aiming for. So hopefully we'll schedule those for those days. Listen up to the end of the podcast. We share our contact information and some other valuable information for you. We're going to have some garden talks in the Houston area to start sharing about soon, right. uh, but we'll try to get those dates out for you. If you happen to be one of our local listeners here or in New York, we like to share our information, and we'll keep you posted if we're anywhere else in the world. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're working on even something maybe in British Columbia. Oh yeah, that's right. Oh, for the summer, for the absolutely. Summer. Uh, we can visit one of my favorite regions in the world. All right, so that's all the time we have for today, and uh, we just wanted this to be like a, a kind of a light episode, and invite you all to volunteer in the landscape sometime soon if it suits your your lifestyle to do so. We look forward to having you join us again next week. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. In the Landscape is brought to you by King Garden, a full-service landscape design, care, and education company. Enjoying what you hear on our podcast? We encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. So drop us a line at connect at kinggardeninc.com. We welcome show ideas, gardening and design questions, and always corrections. We travel all over North America giving garden talks and leading trainings. Check us out at kinggardeninc.com for our speaking details. And also take a look at our online course offerings for more in-depth explorations of topics covered on our show.